0: Good morning. Good morning. Hey, it's good to be with you, guests. My name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at Delaware, LifePoint family. Welcome back. We are kicking — excuse me, we're closing out, as you saw there, our Wide Open World Mission series today. And I just want to go over some of the things you saw in the video again there. Eighty-four people sent out globally to five different countries, to eight different cities, to reach 4,500 people in the last 12 months with the gospel and the privilege of overseeing 400 people make a profession of faith. Can we just thank the Lord for what He's done in the last 12 months? uh, we, We know that that's in the context of, as we'll see this morning, what Jesus told us to do as a church. Right, His church, he gave, the last command he gave to us before leaving into heaven was to go make disciples of all nations. We can't do that alone. We can't do that as a single congregation or as a single church, even across five locations. We do that with our brothers and sisters all across the world. But I do think it's our privilege and our responsibility to play our part in what God has called us to do in fulfilling the mission that he's given us. And so in this WOW series, we've talked about uh, what was happening locally and domestically and globally. Uh, I've said this to you uh, each week. If it is your first time though, it's first time hearing this, this is the one Sunday year. If you're here for 52 weeks this year, we will not ask you to give anything financially, 51 of those. Today is the one exception to that. Congratulations on being here today, right? Well done. Today we take up our WOW offering, our WOW missions offering. I told you a couple of weeks ago and last week that last year our church across all of our campuses gave $202,000, which I'm so grateful for, uh, to fuel mission work. Uh, across the world to fuel relationships locally, domestically, globally. Uh, That supported everything that you saw in that video. As we think towards the next 12 months, we are praying for and hoping that we will send out 150 people, not 84, but 150 people globally into the mission field. We want to start two new global partnerships, three new church planting partnerships across North America. We'd love to send two individuals or two families, not just for a week or even months at a time, but full time, full time into the field. And we also, in addition to all of that, want to continue to plant campuses as the Lord calls us and to continue all of our current support locally, domestically, and globally. So I showed you the number and the task that's before us that I said, hey, I think our teams, they tallied this up and said, we think it's going to take $325,000 to do all of this over the next 12 months. And we kind of joked all along. It's not, it doesn't take a math major to figure out. That's a large jump from 202 to 325. And we've grown as a church. I believe the Lord can do this through us. I believe it can be done. I believe it can be exceeded. And it will require all of us saying, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom and not assuming that someone else will do that. But today I want to start off, before we talk more about that, we'll swing back to that at the end. I want to start off with a question of why. Why do we put such an emphasis on this? Why do we give money? Why do we give money away as a church locally, domestically, globally? Why would we send people halfway across the world? We're going to pray for people at the end of our time today. We're commissioning out 52 people across all of our campuses today into the global mission field. That's a third of all the folks we're hoping to send in the next 12 months. I'm very encouraged by that, and I hope you are as well. But why, why do those people go? Why do some of them give up vacation time to go? Why do all of them spend money, resources out of their own pocket to go serve someone else? The answer is because Jesus is worth it because he told us to do it, and because we believe he first gave his life for us so we joyfully as believers give our lives back to him. And we find that command to go into all the world and make disciples in Matthew chapter 28. It's where we've started every single week in the series. We're going to go there again today. It's basically Jesus giving the job description of the church. He looks at the church, and at that point in time, again, the enormity of the task is almost absurd apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, because it's only 11, 11 of the apostles, all of whom fled from Jesus, all of whom failed the test, and 120 disciples total. That's the whole church. Less people than are sitting in this room right now. And Jesus looks at them. And this is what Matthew in his gospel in the 28th chapter says and tells us that Jesus said. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me which is a great reminder as he tells us to go into all the world and make disciples. He says, guys, I'm in charge. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's literally every ethne, every, every ethnic group, every cultural linguistic group of all people groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I hope you realize how good of news this is, okay? When you hear that from Jesus, the task may sound daunting, but it's really good news because what it means is for every single person here, if you love Jesus, and if you're here today and you don't love Jesus, that's our hope for you, is that you come to understand you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that God made a way for you to be reconciled to Him through the life, the death, and the resurrection of His Son. But if you've accepted that, if you believe that, and you've committed your life to Christ, this is such good news. Because what it means is that you have a purpose. Your life is not an accident. The things that you've gone through are not an accident. The story that God is writing in your life is not an accident. There is a grand author, and Jesus has looked at you and said, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing in the world. The plan of salvation for all nations. This is where all of history is setting. And he says, I want you to be a part of it. Your life matters. Give of your time, yourself, your resources. This is the grand overarching purpose of your life is to join God in his mission. And there's more good news. It's not just about or even primarily about our abilities or our intelligence or our resources or our feeling of being capable. Because if we're honest, I mean, if you really look at that, go make disciples of all nations, the whole world, it feels overwhelming. And you think, I'm not equipped for that. I, I'm not a good speaker. I'm, I'm not a good enough prayer. I don't know enough about the word. I get, I get nervous when we get into faith conversations with other people. When they ask me questions, I clam up. It's not about any of those things. It's about God's power and his Holy Spirit working through you and around you. That's been the big idea of this series. Every single week, we say yes, not because of anything in us, but because God is faithful. We say yes, because God is faithful. When he commands us to do something, he empowers us to do what he's commanded us to do. That's the life of faith, is not looking at yourself saying, I'm pretty sure I can do this, but rather looking at God and saying, I'm sure he can do this, so I'm willing to step out in obedience. And each week we've looked at some characters that we feel like from the scriptures just exhibit that life of faith imperfectly. But this morning we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at a character whose name is Ruth. And it's this lady in the Old Testament. There's a book written after her name, four chapters, where she entrusts herself to the power and the goodness of God. She says yes before she really even knows all of what she's saying yes to. And God, as he always does, proves to be faithful. Now, the Book of Ruth, incredible book. Four chapters short, and pretty much every commentator I read just commented on how it is a masterpiece of literature, a masterpiece of art in the ancient world. One commentator put it this way The Book of Ruth is one of the most delightful literary compositions of the ancient world. The narrator is a master at painting word pictures. He skillfully employs the techniques of dialogue, characterization, repetition, reticence, ambiguity, suspense, word plays, and more to produce this moving work of art. It is a masterpiece of ancient literature. In other, ways, or other words, like the Lord of the Rings of the ancient world, right? <laughs> I've been waiting all week just to say that one thing. So I just want you to… It's, it's woven together so beautifully. There are, to be honest, one of the challenges of preaching through it is how many key themes it's weaving together at once. So what I'm going to do is we're going to walk through parts of it. I'm going to summarize all of it, and we're going to tease out some of those key themes as we go. Let me give you the background of the book of Ruth. The story starts by telling us about a family, and specifically a lady whose name is Naomi, and her husband and they have two sons, and there's a drought in Israel, and so these Israelites move across the Dead Sea to the east to a place called Moab, and we really don't know why they choose Moab. Moab is a traditional enemy of Israel, but they move there, and the two sons get married to two ladies, one of whom is named Ruth. What happens is in a seemingly short period of time, the husband dies, Naomi's husband dies, and her two sons die, and so she is left completely empty and in some ways bitter Her life has been emptied of its joy. And in the ancient world, it's always obviously horrible losing someone that you love. But in the ancient world, losing your husband, losing your sons, that was a full-blown catastrophe. Your means of providing for yourself as a lady in the ancient world, it's gone. And so she doesn't know what she's going to do. And she hears that God has brought rain back to Israel. So she decides to go back and she basically tells her daughter-in-laws, guys, just go home. No need to follow me back into my misery. It says this, Ruth 1.8, Then Naomi said to, her, said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And may the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She gives him a free pass. She looks at him and says, go back to your homes. Go back to your gods, to the way you want to worship, to whom you want to worship. Maybe not the best idea, but she says, look, go find rest. That's, a, that's one of the key themes. Where do we find rest? Where do we find wholeness? She says, go find it. And finding a husband, starting a new life, leaving this terrible chapter behind. Leave me alone in my misery and in my emptiness. One of the girls takes her up on that. You can hardly blame her for it. But Ruth, with a free pass to leave, looks at her mother-in-law And she ends up giving this speech to her, which is famous in the book of Ruth, for its love and its selfless loyalty and devotion. Verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people and your God, my God. And when you die, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I love verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her. It's like, yes, you think? She stopped urging her, and she realizes, well, she's serious, and she says, okay, What Ruth just said and what Ruth just did is a picture of this Hebrew word called hesed, H-E-S-E-D. There's really no English equivalent for this word. It's used 250 times in the Old Testament, most often used of the Lord, but we often translate it as steadfast love. That the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in hesed, in steadfast love. It's this idea of loyalty and faithfulness. And sacrificial love, specifically, it means this act, more than a feeling, an act of love towards someone who is in need, towards someone who doesn't deserve it. And what you're seeing in Ruth here is this human picture of divine love. You're getting a little pre-glimpse of the gospel here, of seeing the character of Jesus. Is this not what Jesus has done for us? Jesus, who left everything to come for us, who shows us steadfast love and is faithful to us and comes to us in our need. That's what Ruth is doing for for Naomi. She looks at her and says, you don't deserve this, but I love you and I'm coming with you and I will be with you. I'll take on your suffering. I'll join you in your suffering. It's a little glimpse of what Christ has done for us. Not only that, Ruth is entrusting herself and her life to the Lord. She's not entrusting herself primarily to Naomi. She says, I'll come with you. But note, she said, your God will be my God. I'm leaving behind everything I've known, and I'm putting my life and my fate in the hands of this God, Yahweh, which is also a key theme. This idea of where does our help come from? Is God trustworthy? Can we really trust Him, and should we take shelter under Him? Later on in the narrative, she meets a guy named Boaz, Boaz is what's called the kinsman or guardian redeemer of their family, which I'll explain here in a little bit. But when Ruth meets Boaz and Boaz finds out who Ruth is, that she's a Moabite who's left everything, her home, her family, all for the love of Naomi, her mother-in-law, and she's come to Israel and she's cast herself under the care of this God of Yahweh. This is what he says to her in chapter 12 or chapter 2 verse 12. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. This is Boaz to Ruth. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And I want you to underline or highlight this phrase, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Here's why I ask you to underline that, to circle it, to highlight it. I want to really just ask you that question. Under whose or what wings do you take refuge? And I want you to think about this for a moment. When things fall apart, when the anxieties creep up, when your life seems like it's just not going the way that you want it to and everything feels out of control, where do you run or to whom do you run for security and for hope? Where do you shelter in moments like that? If we're honest, for some of us, it's money. It's why the fluctuations of the stock market create a small existential crisis for some of us. Every time it's up and down because that's where we've placed our hope. We've placed it there in money and so we ride those waves. For some of us it's career or achievement. And so when you're feeling good right in your career and it's moving forward the way you want it to, you feel you're taking shelter under. You feel good. And when it's not, it feels like everything has fallen apart. You even begin to question your worth and your value. For some of us it's our spouses or family, right? As long as we've got family around us, we feel secure. And listen, some of those things are good things. But the reality is wherever you seek shelter, that's the shelter you'll find. You say, what does that mean, Cale? That's that. wherever you seek shelter, that's the type of shelter you'll get with all of its limitations. If you come and you seek shelter in money, look, money can provide some shelter from some things, but you're gonna find that it has limits. There are certain things that money can't shield you from, certain problems that money can't solve and certain voids that money can't fill. And when you die, and you will die, so will I. It's a reality for all of us. It can't go with you. There's no shelter that it can provide in the life to come. And the same is true of career, even family. Great things, but not ultimate things if you're going to find shelter, if you're going to seek shelter, seek shelter in the one who governs eternity. Seek shelter under the ones whose wings. This is what the psalmist says, right? Go, I I find refuge under your wings, God. Find refuge under his wings. Find shelter. Take refuge in someone that will govern and watch over your soul and fill you with joy for all eternity. Don't put it in lesser or temporary things. Where do you find shelter? Now, let me summarize what happens in the rest of the book. I told you Ruth and Boaz meet. She ends up working in his fields. So when she gets to Israel with her mother in law, she goes to glean in the fields, which basically means she would follow behind the harvesters and whatever fell down that they didn't pick up, she would pick up. That was a custom or a law in Israel. They were to let the poor do that, to go in the fields and pick up whatever was left over in order to provide themselves. And she meets Boaz and she and Naomi discover that Boaz is one of the kinsmen or guardian redeemers of their family, which is an Another custom in Israel. Here was is the custom. It may sound strange to us, but there's a reason for it. When a woman died, if she died, the husband's brothers or the husband's whoever his closest relative was, that man had the responsibility to marry the widow and take care of her. It was a way of protecting the woman and her family. If she had children, or if they had children together, the children of their marriage was actually they were considered the children of the dead husband, so that his name would not be lost. In Israel, that his name and his legacy would continue on. That was the kinsman or guardian redeemer's responsibility to come and to save. The kinsman redeemer also had the responsibility, if a family member was sold into slavery, to buy them back, to redeem them from their lostness. If the family lost property, they couldn't afford it anymore, the kinsman redeemer had the responsibility to go buy that property back. Hopefully you see the undertones of the gospel there, of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. But Boaz is one of their kinsmen redeemers. He and Naomi meet. He likes, or he and Ruth meet. He very much likes Ruth. He's impressed by her character. Even though she's a Moabite, he says, You're a woman of noble character. Same language that's used in Proverbs 31 of the woman of noble character. Boaz sees Ruth and realizes. And this is a woman of noble. They like one another. So no, uh, Naomi gives Ruth some instructions on what to do. I'm just going to be honest. As you read through it, it seems really weird. She goes in the middle of the night. She lays down by his feet. She puts her, like, cloak. He say, she says, spread your cloak over me, which is basically this invitation to marriage. But it sounds super weird to us. And it's also a little funny because he wakes up and he kind of freaks out because there's a woman right there. And it's very awkward. And he says, what are you doing? Well, they have this conversation. It turns out, he says, man, I would love to redeem you. But then there's a plot twist, as all good stories have. They meet, they talk to each other. You're thinking, marriage, happy ending. He says, oh, by the way, there's one other guy who's more closely related to you than me. And of course, it's like the romantic novel. You're like, no, right? They're not going to be together. And so he says, I have to give him the opportunity to, to redeem you. And so he does, but it turns out that guy doesn't want anything to do with Ruth. And so now you're, yes, they're going to be together again, right? And they come together and he marries Ruth and they have a son. And this is how the story ends. After these plot twists and you're emotionally engaged, it ends this way. Ruth four, fourteen. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And then get this, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We just learned two very important things. One, Naomi is no longer empty or bitter. She's full and joyful. We'll talk about that more here in a moment. That's one of the, that is perhaps the key theme of the story is her trends, her story, her journey from emptiness to fullness. It's this picture of grandma sitting there surrounded by her family with a little baby on her lap, right? This picture of fullness and joy. That's how the story ends. We also learn that that son, and this is even more important, that son from Ruth and Boaz is the grandfather of King David and the ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. This is not just a random story with a happy ending. It's part of God's redemptive plan and how he's going to bring about the Savior. There are so many things that we could reflect on in this story. I'm going to highlight three. Two questions, and then one final closing sort of statement. Number one, will we live with the faith and devotion of Ruth? Will we live with the faith and devotion of Ruth? Where you go, she said, I will go. Naomi, it doesn't matter what you walk into. It doesn't matter where you lead me. It doesn't matter how hard it is. I'll die where you die. Wherever you go, I will go. Church, I believe that's the faith and devotion that Jesus commands of us. I truly believe that. He gave his life for us. And he calls us to give our lives back to him. Jesus went to the cross, no matter the cost, left heaven, left everything for us, gave his life for us, rose from the grave, and then calls us. And listen, salvation is free. It's a free gift from Jesus to you and me, received by faith. But he does also tell us salvation is free, but I want you to count the cost of discipleship. Salvation is free. But we're then called to give our lives back to Christ and say, Lord, here I am, as we sang earlier, here I am, you can have it all. My time, my resources, my energy, my focus, my creativity, all the things that you've given to me, I give back to you, I put my yes on the table. Lord, wherever you send me, whatever you call me to give, whatever you call me to do, wherever you call me to go, here I am, I'm yours. Jesus, you are the first priority of my life. I wanna ask you something. Can you say that this morning and really mean it? That Jesus and his kingdom is the first priority of your life? That's so what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom, first the kingdom. He'll take care of everything else. Let me ask you a second question with that. Not only do you think you can say, before we throw that one up, not only before we, you say, hey, yes, I can say that about myself, I want you, this is gonna be a little uncomfortable. If someone else were to take a look at your life, if you handed over to them your finances and your calendar, and they just got to watch your life for a little bit, would they look at you and say, Jesus is clearly the first priority of that person's life? I do believe that's what we're called to. And I do believe as we do that, it leads to fullness of joy in the presence of Jesus. Salvation is free, but we're also told to count the cost of discipleship. Will we live with the faith and the devotion of Ruth? Second is this, how is God working behind the scenes in your life? The story invites us to ask that question. How is God working behind the scenes in your life? At every, pretty much every turn in the story, we get the sense, even though God is not always overtly mentioned, in fact, he's not mentioned all that much in the story. It's a little bit like the story of Esther. If you've ever read Esther, Esther doesn't mention God's name at all. But it's this clear story of how God and his providence is working, his sovereignty over even the mundane things, even the small things in life. It's the same way in the book of Ruth. You get the sense that God's hand is the invisible one moving the narrative forward. Ruth just so happens to go out and glean in the fields. And she just so happens to end up in Boaz's field. And Boaz just so happens not only to be a kind and just man, but also a close relative of the family and a possible kinsman redeemer to Ruth and Naomi. It just so happens that he likes Ruth. And it just so happens that Ruth likes him. It just so happens that the other guy who is the the closest kinsman redeemer doesn't want anything to do with Ruth. And so it just so happens they get married, have a son, And it just so happens that son is the grandfather of King David. It's God's providence over all of it. His hand moving in the events of Naomi's life. And and Naomi gets this, right? At first, she's just bitter and sort of angry. She comes home. She says, don't call me Naomi. Right? Call me. The name is bitter. She says, call me bitter. I'm empty. The Almighty's turned his hand against me. But when when she comes home, when Ruth comes home and says, I met Boaz today. And she realizes who Boaz is. She realizes, wait a second, God's moving here. He's one of the kinsmen redeemers of our family. Her spirit revives. It's a story of God's providence and of his moving in even the small things, in the mundane things of our lives and how he's writing a grand narrative through the things that we often just pass over and don't realize that he's working. And so it invites us to ask that question and to reflect on it. How might God be moving in your life right now in ways that maybe you haven't recognized? How's he moved in the past? How have you seen God move in faithfulness? Not just in the big things, but in the small things. How is he moving right now in the mundane as he incorporates you into his grand story and uses your life as a part of that to reach others with the gospel? It invites us to ask that question. The third thing is this. Naomi's story helps us understand our story. Naomi's story helps us understand our story. And that's not a typo, right? Not, not Ruth, Naomi's story. Ruth's part of it. I told you perhaps the most prominent theme in the book is Naomi's journey from emptiness and heartache to fullness and joy. That's how the story starts, is her losing everything. And the story ends with her being restored. And you say, well, how did that happen? God did it through two things, the selfless love of Ruth and the redemption that Boaz provides. The selfless love of Ruth and the redemption that Boaz provides. And guys, I've already hinted at it, but hopefully you hear that and you see this is leading us toward Christ. As you read the Old Testament, they're not just a bunch of disconnected stories. They are stories that are giving us Pre glimpses, foreshadowings of the gospel. The selfless love of Ruth points us forward to the selfless love of Jesus. Ruth left everything to follow Naomi, even though Naomi didn't deserve it. There was nothing she had to do. She showed selfless love, has said to her, That's what Jesus has done for us. He left heaven, left the throne to come down, take on our suffering, join in our sufferings, go to the cross, bear it on his shoulders, and then rises from the grave and says, Man, turn to me. I'll give you new life. That is selfless love beyond anything the world has ever, beyond anything the world's ever seen. That's what Jesus said. He says, no greater love can you have than this, that you would lay down your life for your friends. Jesus did that for you and for me. And Ruth's love is this picture of that. And then you've got the Boaz character, this kinsman redeemer. The entire, I really believe the entire point of the kinsman redeemer is ultimately to point us towards Christ, our kinsman redeemer, the one who loves us and buys us back from our slavery to sin. The one who comes to us in our need and says, I'm here for you. I will redeem you. I will bring you back. I will care for you. I will love you. That's Christ to us. And you might sit there and think, yeah, but how? I don't feel like I've lost everything the way that Naomi has. I don't, maybe you don't feel in need. I've got everything that I need. Spiritually speaking, this is the way every single one of us is described as spiritually lost, broken, and enslaved to sin, and we need a redeemer. We need a savior. It's how Paul tells it, in Colossians chapter one, he says this, for he, the father, the Lord, has rescued us from the what? The dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He goes on in Ephesians two, he tells us, We were once dead in our sins and our transgressions and now we've been made alive with Christ. Saved by grace through faith. He goes on, he says, we were once by by nature children of wrath, disobedient and without hope in the world. That's our natural state apart from Christ. But now... Because of the mercy of God and the great love with which he has loved us, he's made us alive with Christ, raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. From the dominion of darkness, from spiritual death, from slavery to sin, children of wrath, disobedient to God, to now what? Saved by grace, forgiven, loved, redeemed with an eternal inheritance. That's where we've moved from and where we have moved to because of what Jesus has done. From emptiness and brokenness, it's a fullness of joy in the presence of God forever. You see, Naomi's story, spiritually speaking, that's every one of our stories. If you're here today and you're in Christ, I want you to understand this, embrace it, and know it. You have been moved from spiritual death to spiritual life because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You've been moved from spiritual darkness to spiritual light and you've been moved from spiritual emptiness to spiritual fullness because of the way the father has loved you and expressed that through the life of his son. That's your story. And if you're here today and that's not yet your story, I wanna just ask you, what's holding you back? God so loved the world that he gave his only son and Jesus gave his very life for you, to redeem you, to buy you back? What is holding you back from turning from your sin and trusting Jesus with your life? Normally, we would close out. I'd take a moment and pray for us, but we're actually going to take some time.